Welcome to the Welsh Cast. My name is Jamie, and this is Tom Jones. It's not unusual to be loved by anyone. That man is a national treasure. It's not unusual to have fun Okay, let's turn Tom down, and oh boy, do I ever have a strange episode for you today. So today, we're going to be talking about some of the people who were really pissing Gildas off. People that drove him so batty that he just couldn't contain his rage. And since Gildas was Welsh, he was, predictably, focusing his ire upon the Welsh kings. Though, like I mentioned earlier, the term Wales isn't something that would be used at around this time. At least not by the Welsh. Right now... They're British, and saw themselves as parts of the various kingdoms that populated Wales, but not of any singular political body that we would recognize as Wales. But regardless, all of the action takes place in the Celtic West, so needless to say, this fits right in with the Welsh cast. Now you've heard me talk about Gildas quite a bit in this show, and what a tinfoil nutter he was, but you've never really heard any of his accounts, so I thought that this episode would be a good time to introduce you to Gildas, via a translation of his works done by John Allen Giles, and that was done in the 19th century. And as I read from Gildas, I'm going to try and give it the appropriate fire and brimstone flair, rather than my usual geeky excitement. So just a heads up, there's going to be a tonal shift. And actually, why don't we start out with what Gildas had to say about the state of Wales. Britain has kings, but they are tyrants. She has judges, but unrighteous ones, generally engaged in plunder and rapine, but always preying on the innocent. Whenever they exert themselves to avenge or protect, it is sure to be in favor of robbers and criminals. They have an abundance of lives, Yet, they are addicted to fornication and adultery. They are ever ready to take oaths and, as often, perjure themselves. They make a vow and almost immediately act falsely. They make war, but their wars are against their countrymen and are unjust ones. They rigorously prosecute thieves throughout their country, but those who sit at the table with them are robbers, and they not only cherish, but reward them. They give alms plentifully, but in contrast to this is a whole pile of crimes that they have committed. They sit on the seat of justice, but rarely seek the rule of right judgment. They despise the innocent and the humble, but seize every occasion of exalting to the utmost the bloody-minded, the proud, murderers, the combined and adulterers, enemies of God, who ought to be utterly destroyed and their names forgotten. They have many prisoners in their jails, loaded with chains, but this is done in treachery rather than in just punishment for crimes. And when they have stood before the altar, swearing by the name of God, they will go away and think no more of the holy altar than if it were a mere heap of dirty stones. Gildas. So, it looks like life isn't going too well in 540. Civil wars, wars among the British kingdoms, injustice all over the place, and the ruling classes failing to be appropriately pious. But if you look at the list of complaints, impious behavior is a fairly small slice of what Gildas despised about 6th century Wales. Most of it seemed to be focused upon the fact that the upper classes weren't ruling fairly, and that they were fighting among each other. It wasn't even that they were fighting, it was just that they were fighting other Britons. Reading between the lines, it seems like Gildas might have been okay with him fighting the remaining Germanic kingdoms. But right off the bat, 
Gildas gives us the impression that Wales is overwhelmed by impious and unjust tyrants. So let's learn a little bit about these tyrants that gave Gildas such a headache. And let's tackle them in the order that Gildas spoke about them. So first up is Constantine, the king of Dumnonia. And let's see what Gildas had to say. This horrid abomination, Constantine, the tyrannical whelp of the unclean lioness of Damnonia, is not ignorant. This same year, after taking a dreadful oath whereby he bound himself before God by a solemn protestation, and then called all the saints and the mother of God to witness that he would not contrive any deceit against his countrymen, he nevertheless, in the habit of a holy abbot, amid the sacred altars, did with sword and javelin, as if with teeth, wound and tear, even in the bosoms of their temporal mother, and of the church, their spiritual mother, two royal youths, with their two attendants, whose arms, though not encased in armor, were yet boldly used and stretched out towards God and his altar. Will hang up at the gates of thy city, O Christ, the venerable ensigns of their faith and patience. And when he had done it, the cloaks, red with coagulated blood, did touch the place of the heavenly sacrifice. And not one worthy act could he boast of previous to this cruel deed. For many years before, he had stained himself with the abomination of many adulteries, having put away his wife contrary to the command of Christ, the teacher of the world, who hath said, What God hath joined together, let no man separate. And again, husbands love your wives. But Constantine had planted in the ground of his heart an unfruitful soil for any good seed, a bitter scion of incredulity and folly, taken from the vine of Sodom, which, being watered with his vulgar and domestic impieties, like poisonous showers, and afterwards audaciously springing up to the offenses of God, brought forth into the world the sin of horrible murder and sacrilege and not yet discharged from the entangling nets of his former offensives, he added new wickedness to the former. Go to now, I reprove thee as present, whom I know is yet to be in this life extant. Why standest thou astonished, O thou butcher of thine own soul? Why dost thou willfully kindle against thyself the eternal fires of hell? Why dost thou, in place of enemies, desperately stab thyself with thine own sword? with thine own javelin. Cannot those same poisonous cups of offenses yet satisfy thy stomach? Look back, I beseech thee, and come to Christ. For thou laborest and art pressed down to the earth with this huge burden. And he himself, as he said, will give thee rest. Come to him who wisheth not the death of a sinner, but that he should be rather converted and live. Unloose, according to the prophet, the bands of thy neck, O thou son of Sion. Return, I pray thee, although from the far remote regions of sins, unto the most holy Father, who, for a son that will despise the filthy food of swine, and fear a death of cruel famine, and so come back to him, hath with great joy been accustomed to kill his fatted calf, and bring forth the wanderer, the first robe and royal ring, and then taking, as it were, the taste of heavenly hope, thou shalt perceive how sweet our Lord is. For if thou dost condemn these, be thou assured, thou shalt almost instantly be tossed and tormented in the inevitable and dark floods of endless fire. Gildas. 
So, are you starting to understand why I kept on describing Gildas as wearing a tinfoil hat? He's kind of got a shrill and manic tone to his writing, doesn't he? Alright, so let's break this down. What are we told here? Well, apparently, Constantine is the son of the Queen of Dumnonia, which would probably make him the King of Dumnonia. Sure, the spelling is a little bit off. It's spelled as Damnonia, but Constantine does appear in the lineages of Dumnonia, so it's relatively certain that he was ruling over that kingdom. And Gildas probably just had a typo in there. And from his rantings, we can see that Gildas does not approve of the former queen, describing her as an unclean lioness, which is actually a biblical reference to the beasts of the apocalypse in the book of Revelations. So Constantine isn't just a tyrant, but he's one of the creatures that will bring about the end of the world, or at least he's a child of one of the creatures that will bring about the end of the world. And given the unclean comment, as well as Gildas' later comment about how Constantine's heart wasn't particularly fertile ground for good acts to begin with, perhaps the former queen had a reputation for adultery. The Vine of Sodom line, in particular, seems to be a rather heavy-handed accusation of how his entire family line had a reputation for being lustful. And adultery does feature rather prominently in these screeds, so it really wouldn't surprise me. So, Gildas wasn't a fan of this king or his family, and it seems like Constantine was still ruling at the time that Gildas was writing, since the screed ends with a plea to change. So based on what Gildas had to say, where did Constantine go wrong? Well, apparently, he started out bad and didn't really have a good act that could be attached to his name. And Gildas was troubled in particular by Constantine casting out his wife and having numerous affairs. And this could be what the poisonous showers of vulgar domestic impieties was a reference to. Constantine seems to have had an itch, if you know what I mean. And Gildas believes that that itch placed Constantine on a dark path. Though it seems like there was some sort of effort to reform him since King Constantine took an oath before the Trinity, Mary, and all of the saints that he would essentially live in peace and honesty with his fellow Brits. So I suppose that's good. But then the same year, he disguised himself as an abbot, though an abbot that was apparently armed with a sword and javelin, so I guess a rather hardcore abbot, and he killed two royal youths, as well as their bodyguards or attendants, while they were at church. And they were actually at the altar, in fact, and it was splattered with blood. And even more appallingly is the fact that we're told that the kids were in the arms of their own mother. So it looks like there might have been some sort of internal dynastic struggles, which wouldn't surprise me since we see that happening all over Britain. And it ended with murder, which seemed to have really irritated Gildas for obvious reasons. But Gildas has hope for this bloodstained sex fiend. I mean, he's still alive, and therefore there's hope for him to repent. And we know that King Constantine is Christian, though it seems like he's not a very pious Christian. And so Gildas ended his screed by begging him to repent and return to a pious lifestyle or risk the fires of hell. And that last bit of the rant really is my favorite part of Gildas. He really does have kind of that crazed redemptionist preacher thing going on here, which is a lot of fun. So the question you might be asking is, did Constantine take Gildas's advice? Well, we don't know, but it is possible. There are churches in southwest Britain that are dedicated to St. Constantine, and while Constantine wasn't exactly a rare name, some of them could well have been connected to King Constantine. Now this might be somewhat surprising for you given the murder and the sex and the lioness of dubious cleanliness, so what's the deal here? 
Well, according to tradition, St. Constantine was a king that gave up his crown to become a monk. Some stories have him joining St. David's Monastery at Menevia. So if this is true, could Gildas's less-than-polite warning have influenced the king? It's hard to say, but there was a cult of Constantine, primarily based out of Constantine Parish and St. Marin Parish, which is now called Constantine Bay in Cornwall. So it seems like there were at least stories of a King Constantine who gave up his crown. But to be fair, evidence of these cults didn't really pop up until King Constantine had already been dead for about 500 years. So whether or not their beliefs and traditions reflect reality is an open debate. But it's certainly interesting, and it's possible that King Constantine did reform. But before we leave King Constantine and all of his ladies, Gildas wasn't the only person writing about him. But he was the only person that we really should trust. For sake of completion, I'll point out that Joffrey of Monmouth wrote about King Constantine. But Joffrey is about as historically accurate as Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. And actually, for sake of ease, for the rest of this episode, we're going to call him Lying Joffrey, because that's kind of what he was. So... What does Lying Joffrey have to say? Well, he claimed that Constantine was the heir of Arthur, and that the royal youths were the sons of Mordred, and that the bodyguards were Saxons, and that Constantine was later killed by Aurelius Canonis, thus sparking another civil war. And all of that sounds really interesting and could make for a fairly interesting made-for-TV movie, but it's coming from Lying Joffrey. So are we going to believe that? No. This is the same guy who claimed that Britannia was founded by Brutus while he was on the run from Troy. So, yeah, never listen to Lying Joffrey. But he did bring up Aurelius Cananus, and he probably got that name from Gildas, since that's the second of Gildas's hated kings. And here's what Gildas had to say about Aurelius. Why dost thou also, thou lion's whelp, as the prophet saith, Aurelius Cananus? Art not thou as the former, if not far more foul, to thy utter destruction swallowed up in the filthiness of horrible murders, fornications, and adulteries, as if by an overwhelming flood of the sea? Hast not thou, by hating as deadly as a serpent, the peace of thy country, and thirsting unjustly after civil wars and frequent spoil, shut the gates of heavenly peace and repose against thine own soul? Being now left alone as a withering tree in the midst of a field, remember, I beseech thee, the vain and idle fancies of thy parents and brethren, together with the untimely death that befell them in the prime of their youth. And shalt thou, for thy religious deserts, be reserved out of all thy family to live a hundred years, or to attain the age of Methuselah? No, surely. But unless, as the psalmist saith, thou shalt be speedily converted unto our Lord, that king will shortly brandish his sword against thee, who hath said by his prophet, I will kill, and I will cause to live, I will strike, and I will heal and there is no one who can deliver out of my hand. Be thou therefore shaken out of thy filthy dust, and with all thy heart converted to him who hath created thee, that when his wrath shall shortly burn out, thou mayest be blessed by fixing thy hopes upon him. But if otherwise, eternal pains will be heaped upon thee, where thou shalt be ever tormented and never consumed in the cruel jaws of hell. Gildas. So, more cheery words from Gildas. 
But what's he telling us here? Well, you might have noticed that amongst all the ranting and hatred, something was missing here. Gildas utterly fails to tell us where Aurelius lives and rules. Oh sure, we know he's a tyrant, but a tyrant of where? Of what? On that not-so-minor detail, Gildas is irritatingly coy. Consequently, there's plenty of debate over where he might have ruled. And because we know so little about him, a surprising amount of discussion is focused upon his name. For example, some argue that his last name could be a corruption of a known king of Poes. So maybe he's from Poes, and Gildas was just spelling things a bit funny. And others argue that he might have been a descendant of Ambrosius Aurelius, based upon his first name, though that doesn't really narrow down the search for what he might have ruled over. Unfortunately, there's just very little that's known about him, but there are a few things we can glean from Gildas's frothing description. First, it's clear that Aurelius is still alive at the time of Gildas' writing, because, once again, the old monk is urging the target of his ire to turn over a new leaf. In this case, he's asking that he convert from paganism to Christianity. And he's also pointing out that he's no spring chicken anymore, so we can guess that he's at least at middle age. But the fact that Gildas is asking him to convert is pretty interesting. Despite Wales holding on to Christianity, here we have a king who is still a practicing pagan. Not only that, but one of the great writers of the time is actively trying to convert him, which should give you an idea of the religious climate of the era in Wales. But just because Gildas was trying to convert King Aurelius, it didn't stop him from hurling insults. And actually, those attacks helped fill in some details. For example, we have another child of the biblical lion. In this case, he's the lion's whelp rather than the whelp of an unclean lioness. So does this mean that Aurelius and Constantine were somehow related? It's hard to say because we don't know much about the parents other than the fact that they're dead and that they died in the prime of their youth after wasting their time with idle pagan fancies rather than focusing upon religious matters. But at the very least, we know that Gildas felt that Aurelius was the child of one of the beasts of the apocalypse, and possibly a beast himself. And that belief went beyond simply having pagan parents and persisting in pagan beliefs. The fact of the matter is that Gildas believed that King Aurelius was as bad, if not worse, than Constantine. Apparently, he was engaging in at least as much, quote, horrible murders, fornications, and adulteries, end quote, as Constantine. So that's pretty serious, considering that Constantine, who he's being compared to, had, you know, killed a couple kids while they're being held by their mother, and splattered blood on the sacred altar of a church. So we're getting the impression that Gildas doesn't really like this king. And to make matters worse, Aurelius was also a warmonger, and specifically sought out civil war. Gildas goes so far as to compare him to a serpent, which was about as subtle of an illusion as a punch to the face. And this actually betrays another of Gildas' biases. It seems like he was largely okay with warfare if it was against the Saxons or the pagans, but Brit-on-Brit -Brit violence was appalling to him. After all, it wasn't really the murder and sex that earned Aurelius the snake comparison. It was the war on his own countrymen. And actually, that war on his own countrymen might not have gone too well, and that might be why we don't really know where he was ruling. He might just be trying to spark civil wars. He might be a pretender to the throne, for example. But the point is that Gildas really didn't like Brit-on-Brit -Brit violence. And Constantine had a similar problem. By killing the two royal youths, Gildas completely lost his mind. So it seems like Gildas was really focused upon not fighting amongst themselves, which was probably a good idea considering the fact they had external problems. 
So that's pretty much what Gildas told us. And as for what Lying Joffrey had to say, we already covered that with the Constantine portion. So we can just move on to Vortiporius. And here's what Gildas had to say. Thou also, who are like the spotted leopard, are diverse in manners and in mischief, whose head is now growing gray, who art seated on a throne full of deceits, and from the bottom to even the top art stained with murder and adulteries, thou naughty son of a good king, like Manasses sprung from Ezekiah, Votopor, thou foolish tyrant of the Demetians, why art thou so stiff? What? Do not such violent gulfs of sin, which thou dost swallow up like pleasant wine, nay, which rather swallow thee up, as yet satisfy thee, especially since the end of thy life is daily now approaching? Why dost thou heavily clog thy miserable soul with the sin of lust, which is fouler than any other, by putting away thy wife, and after her honorable death, by the base practices of thy shameless daughter? Waste not, I beseech thee, the residue of thy filth in offending God, because as yet an acceptable time and day of salvation shines on the faces of the penitent, wherein thou mayest take care that in thy flight may not be in the winter or in the Sabbath day. Turn away, according to the psalmist, from evil and do good. Seek peace and ensure it, because the eyes of our Lord will be cast upon thee when thou dost righteousness and his ears will then be open unto thy prayers, and he will not destroy thy memory out of the land of the living. Thou shalt cry, and he will hear thee, and out of thy tribulations deliver thee. For Christ's cloth never despise a heart that is contrite and humble with fear of him. Otherwise, the worm of thy torture shalt not die, and the fire of thy burning shall never be extinguished. Gildas. Wow. That's pretty terrible. But let's try and unpack what's going on with Gildas's complaints against Vortiporius, who is also known as Gwythafir. Alright, to start with, Vortiporius ruled over the Demete, so essentially Devid. If you aren't sure where that is, think Pembrokeshire. You know, southwestern Wales. And by the time of Gildas's writing, Vortiporius was still alive, but he was quite old, he was widowed, and he had at least one daughter. Now once again in Gildas' account, we have a biblical beast of the apocalypse from the book of Revelations. And this time, it's the leopard. So right from the opening, if we didn't know what to expect, we could be relatively sure that, well, Gildas was not going to have many nice things to say. Now it does seem like the previous king was a good one, but that's merely pointed out to point out how bad Votoporius was. So Votoporius, the good king's son, had stained the throne with murder, deceit, and adulteries. And it also appears that he was rather joyless and a stern king, which it seems like Gildas was eager to taunt him with. He was essentially saying, with all that sex you're having, why are you still such a miserable son of a bitch? Which is one of the fun things about Gildas. He just wasn't afraid to sling mud and call people out. And then Gildas goes on to give some of the details of the vices of Votoporius. So apparently he put his wife away, which sounded like imprisonment, and then satisfied his lust with adultery. And then, once his wife died, he slept with his own daughter. So, that's not cool. Ugh. And if Gildas is telling the truth here, this guy sounds awful. 
But am I the only one who's starting to get the feeling that Gildas just isn't very good at insulting people? So when he runs out of things to say, he just goes back to the same penthouse letters style of attack? It's getting a little repetitive, and I wonder how good his information is. Is a monk gonna know about the various sexual exploits of kings all throughout Wales? It seems a little bit questionable to me. So it might just be the kind of thing that people throw around as an attack. You're a terrible king, also you're a total slut. And if that's the case, it seems like Gildas is escalating, because now he's throwing incest into the mix. So he's getting a little creepy. But maybe he's telling the truth. And understandably, Gildas is begging him to change his ways. Though unlike Constantine, there aren't any cults of Votoporius that show up in the later record. So I wonder if Votoporius took Gildas up upon his suggestion. Now as for archaeological records regarding this king, do you remember the stone that we spoke about earlier? The one that had both Ogham and Latin on it? Well, that was dedicated to someone named Votoporigus, who many scholars have attributed to Votoporius. But, like everything from this period, there are arguments regarding this, and some claim that it wasn't a typo or a misunderstanding of how to spell Votoporius, but rather a completely different and unknown person. And whether it is definitely Votoporius or not is something that we may never know. But if it is the same person, he's listed as a Protectoress, which would indicate that his ancestors were part of the Emperor's retinue. Perhaps Emperor Magnus Maximus's retinue. And eventually that title that came with that service had become hereditary. So that's rather interesting if it's the same person. Additionally, just to remind you, Devid, which is where Votoporius was ruling, is one of the regions that had Irish migrants that integrated into the population. In this case, it was probably the Daisy, and some argue that Devon might have been handed over to the Irish rulers by Magnus Maximus. Now I don't know if Gildas knew about all of this, and if he did, I don't know if it flavored his view of the events, but it does seem like he was rather uncharitable with his view of migrants to Britannia when you look at other barbarian incursions like the Saxons. So if Votoporius was of an Irish line, which could explain why Magnus Maximus was in his lineage, since it's theorized that Maximus handed Divid over to the Irish, and if Gildas knew that, is it possible that he was influenced by that and maybe was betraying some biases in his account? Maybe. It's an interesting thought, but, you know, who knows? Now before we leave Votoporius, what does Lying Joffrey have to say? Well, he claims that Votoporius succeeded Aurelius Cananus. He was the guy who Lying Joffrey claimed killed Constantine. But if Joffrey took a reading comprehension test, I'm pretty sure that he failed miserably, considering the fact that Gildas was pretty clear that this wasn't a line of succession, but rather they were just different kings in different areas. And on top of it, all three were alive at the same time. Anyway, so lying Joffrey imagined that Aurelius was the third king of Britain, probably because he was listed third by Gildas. And he gained that title after defeating a bunch of Saxons and a huge Germanic fleet. And then he tells us that Vortoporius ruled for four years. But, you know, pants on fire. Now, interestingly, Nennius, who's another source for this period, doesn't mention Vortoporius at all. He's entirely written out. And so I'm not sure what's going on there. But that's okay, because Gildas gave us quite a lot. And given the tone of the rant, we have every reason to believe that he existed. Gildas was nutty, but I don't think he was so crazy as to make people up. Okay, I have two more kings, but they're kind of big ones and I'm running out of time, so why don't we save those for next week? 
All right. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at the British History Podcast at gmail.com. You can also join us at Facebook. We're at facebook.com slash British History. And we're on Twitter. Just search for at British Podcast. And of course, there's always the forums. Just go to the British History Podcast.com, click get involved, and click forums. And we'll see you over there. All right. Thanks for listening. It's not